Heaven is the place where everybody hopes to go when life is over. It's been called the place of no more farewells, no more sadness, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more heartache, no more disappointments. We've sung a lot about it. Dave has led us in a fine way this morning as all of our songs have centered around this theme, this place. And really, it's the place that the human heart is ultimately pointing to. And yet, for all of our love and desire about heaven and our wanting to go there, if we're honest, we'd have to admit Heaven is mysterious to us. The Bible says a lot about heaven, but there's a lot of things we don't know about heaven. Exactly how will it look? How old will I be when I get there? That matters more to some people than others. What is heaven like? You know, for all of the mystery and all the things that the Bible doesn't say about it, some people have taken it upon themselves to sort of fill in the gaps. They've said, "Okay, the Bible says some things about heaven, doesn't tell us everything. And so we'll just add in some things in recent years, probably around the mid 2000s up to the present. There have been several books written by individuals who've claimed to have died and come back down to earth after seeing heaven. And they've written books about it. One such book was written by a father and son in tandem, Kevin and Alex Malarkey. The son, Alex, was in a car accident when he was six years old, and they wrote a book, and it came out in 2010. And the subtitle of the book was Angels, Heavenly Things, and Miracles, A Life Beyond This World. And it's about the things that Alex said that he saw when he died and went to heaven as he was in a coma for some time. In 2015, Alex recanted. He said none of the things that he said actually took place. He said he made it all up. And then he shared this insightful quote, which I think helps people everywhere that read the Bible and think about eternal things. He says, when I made the claims that I did, he said, I never read the Bible. He said, people have profited from my lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. He says, I take it all back and you shouldn't take my word for it or anybody else's. Really, when it comes to talking about heaven, there's a short list of people who can actually say that they've been and have come back to talk about it or seen some idea of a heavenly manifestation and people that we should listen to. Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, Paul and Jesus. And the list about stops there. And yet for all the mystery, there are some things that we can know. Antoine read for us a moment ago from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, really chapter 4 into chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, Paul says, for we know that if this earthly house of our tent or tabernacle be destroyed, we have a house, a building from God, not made with hands, eternal and in the heavens. Paul says there are some things about heaven that we can know. The things that God has said about heaven, we should echo and we should make sure that we restate those things. The things that God hasn't said, things that won't be known until we realize it by faith. We should patiently wait and be surprised by joy when we get there. We should take God at his word and everything he tells us about heaven, we should accept. And everything that we don't know, we should wait with eager anticipation for that day to come. We can't know everything, but we can know some things. And the more we know about heaven... And the more we sing about it and the more we study about it, it'll whet our appetites for the way that we live here as we long to be there. This morning, let's notice seven things, seven concepts the Bible teaches about heaven, seven things we can know for sure. You know, this list may be longer. There may be more things that we could learn and know. But these are seven that we can know with certainty. Here's number one. We can know that heaven will be better than life on this earth. 
In Philippians chapter 1, Paul's talking about departing. And if you have your Bible, we're going to look at several different passages. And so just flip with the main passages that will be on the PowerPoint. But in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul says he's about to get out of this world, or at least he thought he was initially. Philippians 1 and verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, If I live, I'll live for Christ. If I die, I'll go on to be with Jesus. And then in verse 23, he says, I'm in a strait between two. I'm hard-pressed, having a desire to stay in labor with you, but also a desire to depart and be with Christ. And notice what Paul says, which is far better. Paul described his exiting this life and going to that world, to eternity with God, as not just being better. He says it's far better. It's Hebrews 13 and verse 14. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. You read the Old Testament and what you find is that God promised Abraham and his descendants a physical land, a place where they could live and prepare things for the Messiah to come. But they never saw the heavenly realization of the real promised land, the real Canaan land that will be our eternal reality. And so Hebrews 11 and verse 16 talks about the fact that they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And we can know this for certain, that heaven will be better than life on this earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking to his followers. And you remember what he told them about earthly and material possessions? Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust do corrupt and where thieves don't break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Part of why Jesus says that is this. Heaven will be better than this earth. How do you know it? There won't be any rusting, any wearing out, and there won't be any thieves to take your belongings. Lay up treasures there and not here. Jesus was saying that this world, with all of its greatness and all of its blessings, pales in comparison to the world to come. The word Paul uses in Philippians 1 and verse 23 in the original language means more valuable, more highly esteemed. And in the end, it's just better. It's the same word used in Hebrews 12, 24, when it says about Jesus, his blood speaks a better word than that of Abel because he's the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus' blood in relation to Abel is the same thing we could say about this world in relation to the world to come. Heaven's going to be far greater and far better. And if you're a Christian, you should get your hopes up and get prepared because it will be awesome. U.S. World News and Maps came out with their list at the end of May of this year. And they gave the top places that everybody should seek to vacation in or go to if you get a chance to go. They have places on there like Rome. Paris was in first. Bora Bora. The Glacier National Park, the Swiss Alps, and a host of other places. And for every place they listed, they gave a paragraph of short and said, hey, here's why you should go to this place. And if you go, it'll be worth your while. It'll be great. You should desire to go to these places because it will greatly enhance and enrich your life. And yet, for all of the great things about this world, as beautiful as it is in many places and parts, heaven will be far better. This means... If your life has been relatively good, if you would say you lived a good life, I mean, you've been a lot of places, you've worn nice clothes, you've eaten great meals and good food, you've been to a lot of places, that still doesn't dampen this point. Paul would say, charge them that are rich in this world, not to be high minded or trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. Tell the rich to be ready to distribute and to communicate so that they might lay up a sure foundation for the time to come and lay hold on that which is truly life. What does that mean? Paul, I thought I was living. Paul says you haven't lived yet. Your life's been great. Don't apologize for it. That's great. But heaven's going to be better. And if your life's been terrible, abuse, neglect, mistreatment, nothing ever seems to go your way. Or maybe you would say at best, my life has simply been average. Fret not, because the world you're going to will more than make up for your experiences here. 
Look at Romans chapter 8 and notice what Paul says in verse 18. Romans 8 and verse 18, Paul's talking to Christians about the new life that they have in Christ. And notice the comparison language again in Romans 8, 18. It's just like what you see in Philippians 1, 23. Romans 8, 18, Paul says, For I consider or I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says we're going to something better. It'll far outlast this one. No wonder Paul says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Don't get tied down to this world and here because this is what we know about heaven. For all the things that we can't know, heaven's going to be better than here. Heaven will be better than this world that we currently inhabit because God has great things in store. Now, here's number two. God will be there. You know, sometimes there are discussions about heaven and what's going to be there and what are we going to look like and what are we going to do? And those are great and healthy discussions. But I think they often miss the major point and emphasis that God makes throughout scripture about heaven. You remember Daniel in Daniel chapter two and verse 28. He's revealing the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. But before he gets into anything else, Daniel 228, he says this. I know there is a God in heaven. And when Jesus offers up what we might call the model prayer, Matthew six and verse nine, our father, you know, the rest, our father who is in heaven. One reality about heaven is that God, the father will be there and there's more. We'll see him. The Bible just lays this reality on us that because of our sin and our unholiness, the bodies we currently inhabit, the lives we currently we, we currently live, we can't see God. He told Moses in Exodus 33 and verse 20, no man can see my face and live. In John's prologue to his gospel, John 1 and verse 18, John says, no man at any time has seen God. And you can put in parentheses there yet, because one day we will. In heaven, God will be there and we will be able to see him face to face. That's how the Bible concludes. Revelation 22 and verse 4, John says, we will see him face to face and God will write his name in our foreheads. When we get to heaven, we will see God in a way we've never seen him before. I know we've read about him and studied about him and sung to him. But when we finally get there, God will be there and we'll see him. What does that mean? It means the triune nature of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit will all be present in heaven. God, who loved us enough to send the son, he'll be there. The son who loved us and was willing to be given, he'll be there. The spirit who inspired the message so that we can read about it and dwelt in us throughout our earthly pilgrimage will be there. The Godhead will be there and we will be in their presence enjoying that forevermore. Thanks be unto God for his inexpressible gift. Second Corinthians nine and verse 15. The greatest thing about heaven is that God will be there and we'll be in his presence and in his midst. This is the reality. This is where all human history is pointing toward us being in the presence of the one who made us. And there's nothing any better than that. You know, the Bible says in First Corinthians 15, the end will come and Jesus will deliver up the kingdom to God. Turn your Bible to First Corinthians 15. And notice what Paul says. He's kind of walking through the process about the resurrection. We're going to have new bodies. Jesus is going to deliver up the kingdom to God. But then he says something interesting in verse 28. He says at the end, Jesus is going to deliver up the kingdom to God. And then all things will be brought into God's subjection. Even Jesus, to whom all things were subjected under his feet. And notice the last part of verse 28. Paul says, so that God may be all in all. Now, what does that mean? In the end, everything's going to be delivered up to God and God will be all in all. It means this. God will be in control of everything. And doesn't that give you pause because you say, well, God's in control of everything right now. So what's going to be the difference in heaven? God will be all in all. Finally, there'll be no rival, no opposition. 
Finally, everybody will be behaving just the way that they should. God will be all in all and everybody in heaven will be worshiping God just like he always intended. Revelation 4 and verse 11 gives us a window peek into this where the four living creatures and the 24 elders worship the one who created everything. And for his sake, all things were created and all human history is pointing toward that reality of him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Romans 11 and verse 36. Proud and arrogant people won't be comfortable in heaven because it won't be about them. When Isaiah saw God in Isaiah 6 and verse 5. When Ezekiel saw him in Ezekiel 128 and when John saw manifestation of God's heavenly glory and Revelation 117, they all did the same thing. Every one of them fell on their faces before his face and they realized their position in their state in heaven. It'll all be about God and who he is. And if that frustrates us or disappoints us, we really don't want to go to heaven as badly as we think we do. The Bible says in heaven, God's going to be there and everything in the world will be about him. You can cancel all apologetic seminars in heaven. So much time we spend in energy and effort trying to convince people that God exists. When we get to heaven, there won't be any debate about whether or not God exists. People will not only know that he exists, but that he's exalted, that he's God over all creation. Psalm 57 and verse 11, and that everything in the world is about him. And he did all things for his own glory and for his own purposes. It says now as we sing to him and praise to him, this is the grand rehearsal of that which will take place forever and ever in eternity. And we should laud him for that reason. You know, if your spouse or your child is away at a long distance, FaceTime will do. But you would really rather see him face to face if you could have it that way. Sometimes we meet people online or maybe through technological devices like FaceTime or maybe even email. But then something happens. You go to a place, that person is there and you say these words. Doesn't matter how long you've been communicating at a distance with this person. You might say something like this. Nice to finally what? Nice to finally meet you. You say, I know God. I've read his word. That's great. The spirit of God literally dwells in me. And that's true, too. And though God knows us thoroughly in a way we don't fully know him, when we finally get to heaven, we'll say nice to finally meet you. And it will literally take all of eternity for us to take in his glory. Job says in Job 42, 5, I've heard of you, but now I see you. It's a different thing to see him face to face. And one thing we can know about heaven is we will look on the face of the one who loves us most. And that love will melt us. John says all tears will be wiped away. We assume that's sorrow, but it might be joyous tears as we're just overcome. We've never embraced love like that before. John says, but one day you will. Here's number three. Not everyone goes to heaven. We can know that heaven will be better than this world, that God will be there and that not everyone goes. You know, Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, that we should enter in at the narrow gate because broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many go in there at because straight or difficult is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. Now, if you're in Matthew chapter seven, notice what Jesus says in verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name done many wonderful works. And I will profess to them, depart from me, you that practice lawlessness. I never knew you. This makes us uncomfortable sometimes. People love to talk about heaven. In fact, statistics say two thirds of Americans believe in heaven and believe that they're going. Pew Research recently did a study. Five percent of atheists believe in heaven. And yet the Bible says Not everybody's going. It's going to be a narrow gate. Jesus says, few there be that find it. 
you know, people say, well, who made you judge? And how can you say who's going and who not, who's not? Don't listen to me. Listen to Jesus. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Listen to the apostles. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts four and verse 12. Heaven's going to be a grand and glorious place, but it will only be for people who made divine reservations while they were in this life. And we should appreciate that and start to get ready. Bertrand Russell was a philosopher who lived in the mid 1900s. He was an agnostic. That meant he would be in the category of person. If you said, Bertrand, do you believe in God? He would say, ah, there's evidence that says he might be there. There's evidence that says he might not be there. I can't really decide. But he did believe that Jesus existed and was a real person. And he's in a long list of people. This is a quote from Russell about Jesus on this subject. He says, there stands one defect in my mind about the person of Jesus from Nazareth for all of his moral good, Russell says. The one defect is that he believed in everlasting hell. Bertrand says there really is no thoroughly humane person who could actually believe in everlasting punishment. You see, this is the teaching from Jesus that makes people most uncomfortable and makes them most reserved about responding to him. But nobody ever says that about everlasting joy. Nobody ever said, well, you know, I just can't believe that I would actually go to heaven. Most people think they deserved it. Go to anybody and say, why are you going to heaven? And most people will say, I've been a pretty good person. I've read the Bible. I believe in Jesus, but Jesus says, you've got to take everything I've said. We should say things and believe in heaven because Jesus teaches us that. But also we have to accept this reality about heaven. Not everyone's going. And Jesus talked about that more than anybody else in the Bible. Do your own search sometimes on the word hell in the Bible. And it's on the lips of Jesus more than anybody else. He would say, cut off eyes, pluck out eyes, cut off arms and remove limbs. So that you might escape everlasting hell. Matthew 5, 29 through 30. Don't fear men that can destroy the body and after that have nothing else they can do. Instead, fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. If you cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it'd be better for you that you be cast into the sea with a millstone around your neck than experience everlasting torment in hell. Matthew 18 and verse 9. And so this says, if I'm in Christ, that's great, but I've got to live like I'm in Christ or heaven won't be my home. This means this is not just about vaguely being a Christian at large and saying, "Okay, I believe some things about the Bible in a general sense. Jesus says, I have to know you. And what does that mean? It means you have to have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like he says in the New Testament. It means a person has to believe that Jesus is the son of God. John 8 and verse 24, he says, unless you believe I'm he, you'll die in your sins. It means you have to repent of your sins. Acts 17 and verse 30. God commands all men everywhere to repent. You have to confess with the mouth what the heart believes. With the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then you have to be baptized in water to have your sins forgiven and rise to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 and 4. If you've never done that before, all of the glorious things your mind can fathom, all the songs you can sing about heaven, those things ultimately won't be your reality, though they could be because you haven't done what Jesus has said. Not everyone goes to heaven, only those that are in Christ and that live faithful. Somebody says, well, what does that mean? Because I'm worried. It doesn't mean perfect living. It just means that nobody and especially God should have to ever doubt what matters the most to you in this life and what you are truly living for. John would say it this way. It's about walking in the light. First John one and verse seven, living a life consistent with New Testament teaching, because Jesus tells us himself, not everybody's going. But here's the thing. You make sure that you go. 
Peter would say in Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, save yourselves from this crooked generation. You play a part. God's casted a vote for you to go to glory. The devil's casted a vote against you going to glory. And the Bible says you and I get to decide and cast the deciding vote. We should know about heaven that not everybody's going. Here's number four. In heaven, there'll be a lot of people from a lot of different places. This in no way contradicts the point previously made about this idea of there being few there be that find it. When the Bible says few there be that find it, it means that in relation to all the people who have ever existed. But the Bible does say there's going to be a lot of people in heaven from a lot of different places. Listen to Jesus. In Matthew 8 and verse 11, he says they'll come from the east and from the west. And then in Luke 13, 29, he says they'll come from the north and from the south and they will all sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac and with Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But John says it's stronger. Go to Revelation chapter seven. Go to Revelation seven and notice what John says, not just about heaven, but about how many people are going to be there and who those people are going to be. Revelation seven and verse nine. John says we talked about this about this this morning in the Bible class. John says I saw a numberless multitude, but there's more. From all nations and tribes and tongues and languages. John says there's going to be a lot of people from a lot of different places and they'll be there in heaven. And so we should think about heaven in that. I know, you know, a relatively small number of Christians. I realize that. And we worship in our congregations and we think, hey, this is great. We've got 300 people here, maybe smaller congregations, 60, 70 people. And John's saying, you've got no idea. I've been to lectureships and workshops and somebody stands up and they mean well and they say something like this. Hey, we got 5000 people here. This is sort of what heaven's going to be like. And surely the angels nudge each other and laugh. We've got no idea. John says, can you count those people? Because if you can count them, it doesn't pale. And it's no it's no relation to what's going to happen when you get there. You can't count all these people that have come to him. Isaiah 2 and verse 2, Isaiah saw 700 years before Jesus came, people from all nations pressing in toward this eternal kingdom. And when you think about heaven, you should think about a packed room. You should think about people from all over the world. This point alone could heal many of the world's ills. There won't be any racism in heaven. There'll be people from all over the place. These people aren't colorblind. Listen, they don't lose who they are. John didn't say, well, I just saw disembodied spirits and souls. No, John said they're from different places. They speak different languages. But that's not what's most important about them. It's how they all got there. And it's because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. In heaven, there'll be people from all over. There'll be people in heaven that spoke English. And that spoke Hebrew and Russian and Chinese and German. There'll be people there that spoke Greek and there'll be people there that are men There'll be people there that are young children. There'll be women in heaven. They'll all be there. John says, I saw a lot of people from a lot of different places. And we should broaden our scope because there are people all over the world obeying the gospel all the time. And John says, when you get to heaven, they'll be there. And you make sure that you reserve your seat so that you'll be ready and you'll be prepared. In heaven, there'll be a lot of people from all over. Jesus said he would make room for everybody that came to him. No wonder the gospel was said to go to all the world. Mark 16, 15. And they were to disciple the nations, Matthew 28 and verse 19. And the New Testament says that's exactly what happened. People from all over the world came. Jesus came to tear down the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. You know, walls are meant to keep people out, but Jesus came to gather us all in. There won't be any separation. Everybody that's in Christ will be together and God will be all and in all. This says unity should be our motivation now. If you can't get along with people now, you can forget about getting up there and messing up heaven. If you can't drive across the city with somebody, I would advise you not to go on a cross-country trip with this person. 
Sean says, in heaven, we're all going to be there. In heaven, everybody will like you. You'll still be you, but you'll be the best you you've ever been. There'll be too many people in heaven like you for you to be socially awkward. And yet there will be different people enough so that we know everybody's not a clone. No warts or weirdness and glory. We'll all be there. It'll be heavily populated and yet peaceful at the same time. No friction and no disagreement. There'll be introverts and there'll be extroverts. There'll be well-known Christians like Peter that everybody knows and people that serve God in obscurity that nobody probably could tell you their name. In heaven, Peter and John and Paul will all be around the throne with us. Stephen and Paul will hug for the first time. In heaven, evangelists will say to those they converted, I told you so. It's glorious. It's great. I'm glad you arrived. In heaven, we'll behold the lamb. There'll be more people than we can fathom. But here's the point for us. It says to us there's still room. It says to us our work isn't done. Luke 14, Jesus told this parable where a man was told to go out into the highways and hedges and invite many. And he came back and thought he had done his job. And the master says, no, there's still room. I would have my house to be filled. And when we think about heaven, we should think about it from that vantage point. We know a relatively small number of the saved, even the church in America. And we might sometimes think, well, heaven's going to be like some little chess club or country club. There'll be about 60 of us and the folks I know from across the way. John says, you've got no clue. It's going to be jam packed and there'll be people from everywhere and make sure you make it. Here's number five. John tells us that or the Bible tells us that God has prepared it. One thing we can know about heaven is that God is the one who set it up and prepared it for us. In the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 and verse 34, Jesus says to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Heaven is a place that God has prepared for us. You think about the world in which we live with all of its beauty and God did this in six days. Imagine what he has in store based on what he's been preparing from the foundation of the world. It's going to be glorious and great. And we know it because God prepared it. It's been prepared before the foundation of the world. When Jesus says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, that doesn't mean Jesus went back to heaven to pull permits and grab hammers and start building us a place. Jesus is going to the cross is and was the preparation. He's not working on it. And then when he gets done, he says, "Okay, I can come back and get you. I go to prepare a place means I go to make a way for you. And he went and the way has been made in heaven. It is prepared. We can trust God and we can trust heaven to be as glorious as God has said it will be because we know who God is. In Hebrews 11 and verse 10, the Bible says that Abraham and the other patriarchs looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. We can know that heaven's already set up for us and that God wants it for us for the very best. Everything in heaven will be perfect. There won't be any flaw. Temrec, Florida, is about three hours from where I lived in Lakeland, Florida. And one time this guy made the news. His name was Curvell Holness. He thought he had struck gold finally. He bought a villa that he saw advertised for $177,000. He purchased it for just a little over $9,000. But he was disappointed. When he went to grab his property, he did not purchase a villa. He purchased a 100 foot by one foot strip of grass that ran between two villas. He had made a mistake. He tried to sue and call the authorities and they looked and they said no. On the appraiser's website, they listed exactly what you got. He wasn't overwhelmed. He was underwhelmed and he was disappointed. Whatever heaven's going to be like when you get there, you won't be disappointed and neither will I. We won't shrug our shoulders and say, well, I guess this will have to do. We won't say, well, I mean, this isn't everything, but I guess it's all right. We're going to be amazed. We will stand in awe because God has prepared it. 
I see no need to go to Revelation and take the streets of gold and all of the symbolism there literally. But here's what we can know. If God has promised it and God has prepared it, God will perform it. And so Titus 1 and verse 2, in hope of everlasting life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. God's prepared heaven. We should be preparing ourselves to go where he is. Here's number six. We can know that heaven will last forever. Time is a human construct created for people that dwell on this earth. Genesis chapter one, God introduces creation, but he also introduces time. But Psalm 90 and verse two describes God this way. He's from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. That is eternity in the beginning and there'll be eternity at the end. But really, eternity is going on right now. You and I are bound by time and space. But when our lives end, we, too, will be ushered into the eternity that always continues, even at this present moment. When Paul was trying to comfort Christians in Thessalonica about the return of Jesus, he says, you haven't missed it yet. In fact, your dead loved ones who've gone on before you, they don't even have a head start. When you see them again, it will not be the case that they'll say, well, I've missed you. It's been such a long time because there's no concept of time in eternity. Paul says we'll be caught up together in the clouds to meet them in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. First Thessalonians 417. I think sometimes if we're honest, though, we say, you know what? I want to go to heaven. That'd be great. But forever is a long time to do anything. Amen. Like, can I really stand it that long? Will I be? Able? But you don't understand. In heaven, our bodies won't wear out. We won't know earthly fatigue. In heaven, there won't be any wickedness or crime or sin. Most of what the Bible says about heaven, it talks about the things that won't be there. No liars, no adulterers, no sorcerers, no cowardly, no unfaithful, but all of the righteous. Revelation 21 and verse 8. Everybody whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast out. Revelation 21 and verse 7. We will finally do what we struggle to do here. Philippians 4 and verse 8. And think on things that are true and honest and just and lovely and pure and of good report. Can we stand it? We can't wait for it. And it's going to last forever. There'll be no interruptions. It will go on and on as we're in God's presence and in one another's presence. Part of what we'll do is worship, but surely there'll be more as we'll enjoy everything good that God's prepared for us. One of the ways the Bible describes this over and over again is it talks about eternity or everlasting life. So the golden text of the Bible, John 3, 15 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. What does that mean? It's going to last forever. Come, you blessed of my father, inherit eternal life. Matthew 25 and verse 46. This is the promise he's promised us. Eternal or everlasting life. First John two and verse twenty five. We know this about heaven. It will last forever. Woody Allen famously said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And maybe we feel like that. The world says, hey, one day your life's going to expire. And the Bible affirms it. Hebrews nine and verse twenty seven. It's appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. And sometimes people that are not religious, they try to comfort us about death because even unbelievers realize that death is a reality. There was an article in Time magazine from 2018. And the subtitle was this. How to not be afraid of death. And the author tried to offer some non-religious motivation of why you shouldn't be afraid. And he said this in summary. He says you will die. You won't be able to take your loved ones with you. But if you pour yourself into your work, you can be glad that you left the world in better shape. And the Bible says, don't believe that. Don't accept that. In Christ, there'll be a faithful reunion. You can see your loved ones again and you won't have just left the world a better place. You'll leave this world and go to a better place. 
And we will always be with the Lord. There won't be any interruptions. I know the word is only two syllables, but it's one of the hardest to say goodbye. But in heaven, you won't. In heaven, you can throw out your clocks. No more calendars. No more keeping up with schedules. We will always be with the Lord. You see, if you think about your forever, it'll help you live right for now. And this is the motivation the Bible uses for godly living. Not merely that, hey, you don't want to go to hell. And that's in the Bible. But also, don't you know where you're headed? Seeing then that all these things will be dissolved, what type of people ought you to be in all holy conduct and godly living? Seeing that the elements will pass away with a great noise and the earth and the works on it will be burnt up with fervent heat. What type of people should you be in all holy conversation and godliness? We await a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. What's the motivation for watching our speech and our conduct and the way we treat other people? For now is where we hope to go forever. And the more we contemplate where we want to spend our forever, the more equipped we'll be to live right with God for now. And here's the seventh and final one. We can know for sure about heaven is that we can know we're going. Some people just will never get over the fear that they might miss it. But Jesus holds out hope that we can be certain. First John five and verse 13, John says, These things we write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. John says you can know, not because you're perfect and sure of yourself, but because ultimately you're sure of him. John says you can have no doubts because there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 and verse 1. That means if you're a Christian walking in the light, there will be no sins that will be held against you in the day of judgment. Somebody says, then why the judgment? Because everybody is going to be present and hear him say about you. All the charges have been dropped. Everybody will be present and hear him say about you. This person is not condemned. They're faithful and in Christ Jesus. One of the things that we can know about heaven is that we are going with certainty. Paul says that I know him in whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against this day. The Bible describes it as a new place. Second Peter three thirteen. We'll have a new status. I don't know all of what's involved in this, but first Corinthians six, verse two and verse three says we will judge the world and we will judge the angels. We can know that for sure. We'll be new creatures with new bodies. Second Corinthians five and verse one. This earthly tent, while we're in this earthly tent, there's a sense in which we're absent from the Lord. But then we'll be fully in his presence. Second Corinthians five and verse eight. And we can be confident about it and we can know it. Turn your Bible to Philippians chapter one and notice verse six. Philippians one and verse six. He says a similar thing to what John says in first John five and verse 13. And you might underline these passages or use them as cross references. Philippians one, six and first John five, 13. Paul says this in Philippians one and verse six. He says, I am confident of this thing, this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will complete it or fulfill it until the day of Jesus Christ. Question. What are you sure of? Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. I know for sure. You know, some of us are sure failure. I just knew things were going to go wrong. I knew it. I didn't get my hopes up. I just knew I was going to fail this test. I just knew I wouldn't get the job. We've been so disappointed here. We can't possibly have confidence about there. Paul says, I am sure and confident of this one thing. This is our reality. And until we're confident of it, we'll never be all that God wants us to be. You can know about heaven that you're going. Are you in Christ? Somebody says, yes, but have I done enough? No, you haven't. But he has. Have I gotten it all right even after my baptism? No, you haven't. But the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse. But, you know, I failed him a lot. He won't collect on the same debt twice. He's forgiven you. And so long as you do what he's asking, walk in the light and confess, all the charges will be dropped. 
As C.S. Lewis ends the series in the Narnia Chronicles in the last book, The Last Battle, in one of the last scenes, he describes the people in the book as coming to Narnia, which is really in the C.S. Lewis Narnia Chronicles series, heaven for them. And all of the animals and all the people in the book, they finally get to Narnia, their place of heaven. And he says that they love it. It reminds them of the old Narnia, but this Narnia is brand new. It's glorious. And everybody says several things. But then it's the unicorn who stumps down his foot, his right foot, and he exclaims these words which I believe will be in some way, shape, or form on the lips of every faithful person when we finally get home. He said this, I've come home at last. He said, this is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. And then he'll hear these words echo back to him. Come further up, come further in. Somebody says, we live as strangers and pilgrims, but when we finally get there, we'll say, this is my real country. I belong here. This is why I've sung the songs and prayed the prayers. This is why I've bowed before the lamb and taken the supper. This is my real country. I've been looking for this place my whole life, and I never knew it until now. And you'll hear these words. Come further up. Come further in. Welcome home. Rather than let other people tell us what heaven will be like, we should trust God, who's already there, and who knows what it's all about. God says, you can know. Paul says we know that if the earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a house of building with God, not made with hands. It's eternal. And in the heavens, when you get there, he's waiting for you. You have a spot reserved. Nobody will be shocked. They're anticipating our arrival. For those of us that are in Christ Jesus, there will be a multitude of people. And if you haven't obeyed the gospel, would you please add your name to that multitude? Would you respond by faith to the grace of God and be immersed in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or at least give us the opportunity to study the Bible with you and tell you the greatest story, true story that has ever been told, that God loved you to death so that you could know everlasting and eternal life. We'd be happy to do that. If you need to respond, if we can help you in any way, if we can pray for you or pray with you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.